This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Buddy, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back with you to talk about film. Pictures, movies, talkies. The cinema. The cinema. The cinema. What's up? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what's up with you? Well, I guess this is a good time to mention. Uh, I uh, just finished writing a book. What? <laughs> Literally, like a week or two ago, I turned it in. <gasps> That's huge. Do you want to tell people what it is or just kind of leave it at, I did this thing and I'll tell you later? <laughs> yeah. Not to be all Daniel Henderson about this, but I was like, <laughs> am I even allowed to? And then I was like frantically looking through emails being like, am I going to get sued if I talk about this book? I don't know. So I'm just going to say I wrote a book. It's about movies, about cult movies specifically. And then I just will leave it at that. I am so proud of you. Thank you so much. Obviously, um, I have many times shaken you down for information. <laughs> I think like the first week I started, like I sent you a message and I was like, how do you write a book? And you were like, <laughs> what? <laughs> it is possibly the favorite text that I've ever received. <laughs> yeah. Or I just, I think it was like, what's your process? I was very much like, yeah. I want to know how you do it. And you gave me, you know, sort of your your vibe and all the tips and tricks that you have to write. And I still procrastinated. So it doesn't even matter. All that went out the window. All the advice, I hate to say. That's the one bit of advice I can't give anyone. Like, I do not know how to tell people to not procrastinate because it feels so good to procrastinate. Yeah. And... It also is part of the process for a lot of people. Like the actual procrastination is part of the writing, you know? Yeah. I hate that this is my personality, but I thrive on deadlines. Like I'm always, yeah. I've always been that way throughout school, everything. And I, um, but I hate it. I get, I'm resentful of my own procrastination. So. Yeah. I feel you. I was like that in school and, you know, at a lot of jobs and I had to like, I had to actively work to change it. I think this is why, um, like when I tell people my schedule, they're like, what? And I'm like, no, I have to do this or else I don't get anything done. It's why I became a morning person. Oh, yeah. I became a morning person because when I was in LA, I thought, well, if I wake up and have three hours to myself before anyone gets to work, then I won't be tempted to procrastinate with emails and all that stuff. And I got this program for my computer where I could turn off internet access for however many hours I want. And I had to like literally force myself to become a different kind of person <laughs> in order to not procrastinate anymore. And it took years, took at least two years to really catch on. So I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I've learned a lot about myself throughout this process. And a couple things is one, the time management obviously was a big thing for me. Um, I got it done under the gun, but it's that thing where I was like, uh, 
I should be better at this. Um, so I, that's something I will work on in the future if I ever do this again, which if you talk to me right now, I'm like, huh, that was hard. <laughs> I don't think I want to do that again, but who knows? But then the other thing is that I don't recommend writing a book when you have like two other jobs. Yeah. And the entire time I was looking at you going, how do you even stand it? Like I was literally like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing all this stuff in one like there's too many, too many things going on. It's too many things. It's hard yeah. to do. And I have to tell you, I don't know how I do it. I think part of the reason that I'm able to do it is nobody is in my face or in my yes. vagina. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, I don't live with kids. I don't have a partner. Yep. And, you know, the one person I take care of on this planet, I have help with. Like, I have hired a nurse to help with my grandma. Yeah. And that's truly the only way I think I'm able to, because I need to utilize every possible minute of my schedule for myself right now. Yeah, no kidding. I just kept thinking that too. I was like, wow, it's like, there's no way this could happen if there was literally anybody else around me. Yes. But hey, we'll see what happens. Like I said, it just turned it in. There's a lot more to do, but I was thinking about you the entire time. So actually it made me admire you more. Not that Aww. I hold you in such high esteem and it's like basically impossible for it to be any higher. But at the same time, I was like, damn, I'm really impressed by Danielle and her Aww. and her jobs and her writing and her time management and everything. So thanks, friend. I yeah. appreciate that. And you have also definitely been on the receiving end of some like, ah, like panic text for me. So that's also a good way to do it is just have a valve, a release valve. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you no can kidding. just shout into the ether. But I'm I'm super proud of you. I think it's a cool project. To be fair, I don't think you were set up for a lot of time management success, but you still managed to do it, which is huge. Um, yeah, and I just I am I'm really really proud of you. And I think this is just the first step of many books to come in in your name. Well. We will see. <laughs> Maybe I'll just be like one of those rich people that hires a ghostwriter. <laughs> And I'll just sit on a lawn chair and I'll just like recount my memoirs and then have some like young person with a lot of energy like write it all and then be like, yes. I wrote it. I was approached to be a ghostwriter just this week. What? And I said, nope. Wow. Yeah. It was wild. It's wild. Because I know they exist. I know it's a job. I know it's legit. It's out there. Yeah. But it was a person I wasn't really familiar with. Yeah. And so I was like, I, I can't for someone I don't really know at all. Yeah. And it was a very, very young person who was, let's just say that next to this person, I would look like Gollum. <laughs> so like, we don't even have the same life. <laughs> like we have wow. no adjacent lifestyle things at all. <laughs> so you're saying it's Timothy Chalamet is what yes. you're Yes. It's old Tim Tim. Tim Tim CC's. Timothy Chalamet could never write a book. He could never. He needed me and I said, no. <laughs> It's not him. It's not him, people. It's not him. Stop editing his Wikipedia. Put the phone down. Do not call my lawyer. <laughs> well, what else is up? Well, while you were traversing the world of literary heights, I was wondering, I spent a good deal of time wondering this week, whether or not I have a dump truck butt <laughs> or if I just have a big butt. I can't tell. What is a dump truck butt? Just for clarification. That's the question. I don't fucking know. I think a dump truck butt has to have a bit of a shelf to it. Okay. Okay. But I don't know because I've seen some butts referred to as dump truck butts across the genders, by the way, yes. that don't have the shelf. So I don't know if I have a clear understanding enough of what a dump truck butt is to know if I have one. But my butt is bigger than it used to be. Mm. 
And so it just got me curious, like, am I in a new category or is it just the same old big butt? Look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Even in the Cisco days when he said dumps like a truck, I, I still, I, I was kind of unclear even then yeah. what it really meant. Like, ma'am, what are you talking about? I just assumed it meant like big butt, but I wasn't sure if there was a architecture behind it. Well, yeah, like are dumps cheeks? Right. What are dumps? What are dumps? Because dumps come also out of the butt. Dumplings? Dump- <laughs> is that what we're, that we're talking, about, talking about? Dumplings? <laughs> Hard to say. Dump truck. Is it just the... Because now I'm like, what is a dump truck? <laughs> well, now I'm going to Google dump truck. And I'm I'm afraid to Google it because you know what, what things are like when you Google dump truck, but it'll be pure fill. Well, if you just Google dump truck, you will see a lot of children's toys. Um, so that's kind of nice. Okay. I guess I was thinking a dump truck was an excavator. So there we go. No. I fucked that up immediately. Um oh. A dump truck is exactly what you think it is, which is that it's like a, a big truck that has the back that flips up so that all of the shit can come out of it. So is this like a, a intestinal compliment? Because <laughs> I feel like... You take big dumps. Is that what they're saying? Is that what that means? I don't think that's what they mean, Millie. I do not think the children are saying dump truck butt and they mean, hey, good job cleaning out your freaking colon. Can you clean out a colon? I know nothing about nothing. Okay, I'm going to read you the Urban Dictionary definition. Okay. And there's two. There's one for dump truck booty, <laughs> and there's one for dump truck ass. So I feel like we need to make that distinction. Dump truck booty says, a trending metaphorical term to describe a specific type of large booty Dump truck refers to a booty that typically exceeds the measurement of 40 inches. 40 inches, but which way? Across? Yes, that is not made clear. Hang on. 40 inches is most human adults, I gotta say, right? Do you have a tape measure? I don't. I would measure it now to find out what the circumference is. My butt is definitely, I don't think it's 40 inches across solid. But I know what my pants measurements are like. 40 inches is like three feet and some change. Am I wrong about that? I mean, are they talking about circumference? Are they talking about the measurement from lower back around the cheeks? 12, 24, 36, (laughs) add four. What does dump truck ass have to say? Maybe that'll give us some more clarification. Okay, here we go. We might, you might be onto something. Dump truck ass is a noun. Uh, I just thought you should know it's a noun. Um, A bodaciously large ass that slams and bounces with each step. Usually there is a ripple that bounces throughout the cheek as the foot hits the ground. Okay, so we went very specific the other way in a way that also is not helpful because that to me just sounds like a human ass. Listen, these are two very different definitions if you ask me. Because one suggests... It's a size thing. Right. The other suggests that it's a motion thing. Right. Because with a dump truck ass, you can technically have any size of butt. Right. But as long as it does the motion of jiggling, then it's a dump truck ass. But the other, the dump truck booty says it has to be at least 40 inches. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is so weirdly fascinating to me because it's like, (laughs) I guess as a nation, we're sort of torn by what it could be, but I still, we still haven't really found out what it 
actually is. Because those are two very different things, like I said. Yeah. So which one would you pick if, if it was up to you? If it was up to me, I would pick dump truck ass because I can't be confined by math. Yes. Like, I don't want my ass to be confined by math. If it's bouncing and there's a ripple through the cheek, then I want to be in the club of the dump truck ass. <laughs> well, but then also, too, like, with dump truck booty, where does the 40 inches come from? Is this, like, a regulation? Like, is I mean, it the Olympic standard? Like, how does it, How who came up with 40 inches? Is it the Olympic standard? Ma'am, you cannot get in this pool unless you have a 40-inch ass across or perpendicular. We don't know. Get 40 inches out of that ass before you dare come swimming in this pool with Michael Phelps. It's kind of like when you watch the dog show and you look at all (laughs) these dogs that are like to breed specification or breed standard. And I'm like, who decided that? Like, I guess it, is it history? Did somebody look at a poodle in like the 1600s and says, this is the way the poodle should look. And so it shall be written. And in 2021, they will have a contest and make sure that all those dogs have this perfect haircut. Yes. You know, I don't understand who, where it came from. All I want to know is, was Cisco on this committee? <laughs> Does Cisco have to attend a UN-style meeting annually to help decide the definition of dump truck? Is he, is he the ambassador of the ass? Listen, Cisco had to go all the way down to the courthouse downtown, fill out the paperwork. He was like, who else is going to do this job? Sir Mix-a-Lot? Nope, he's busy. No one else is filling out this 401c3 <laughs> for this regulation ass. Somebody has to decide. Who decides? Is it myself, Cisco the Dragon? <laughs> Sir Mix-a-Lot? Two live crew. Megan the Stallion? <laughs> is it three people? Is it like, I mean, who could it be? I just am like. Here's what I know to be true. And I will have to check with the UN faction of Cisco to make sure. But my ass is bigger than it used to be the last time I checked on my ass, which was years ago. It's bigger. It looks like it's been hit with a ball-peen hammer. It's a different ass than I'm used to looking at. (laughs) And that's all. I just wondered, it's a a totally different ass since the last time I looked at my ass. So I was just kind of curious if I've upgraded, downgraded, downshifted. I don't know. Well, you're never going to know officially Unless you have Rex and Effect weigh in. <laughs> you might actually have to get juvenile and mystical and perhaps a black eyed peas. I want Rex and Effects. I want juvenile. I want like the national anthem of the dump truck booty to be a mix of all of these songs. Like the ultimate DJ mix of <laughs> Shake Your Ass, Back That Ass Up, and Thong Song. My Humps, Bootylicious. Yes. Rump Shaker, Baby Got Back. I mean, uh, this is clearly a shadow government. And they've decided to create this Urban Dictionary entry to give us the exact measurements of a dump truck booty, 40 inches. This shadow government of ass, which is also what we are calling this episode, <laughs> has given us so much and, des- and just decided or explained so little. So little. <laughs> but listen, here's the thing. If you really want to get serious about this ass thing, okay? You know I do. My ass has probably changed too. And I feel like it hasn't, it's just gotten wider, but not rounder. Like, so it's just, now it's just flat and medium. Now it's just flat and big. <laughs> 
I don't have the roundness. I've never had the roundness. I've just had a flatness right. to my butt. I feel you. I've, I've got a roundness. Anything in my body that is working for me in a positive way, it's purely genetic. Yeah. I have done nothing to enhance any part of my, my being. Yeah. Including exercise. <laughs> including but not limited to any exercise at all. So, yeah. I feel you. I think that the changing shape of the ass is a TED Talk that I'm interested in. And I don't think anyone's going to give me that talk. So I would like to define my own ass. I want to define my own ass before someone defines it for me. I agree. and I, But I argue, too, that like I personally have done many squats in my life and have deadlifted Sonny Corleone with the best of them. <laughs> um, I, I never noticed a change to my ass mm-hmm. when I've been concentrating on it in a workout. Like, I I don't think it's gotten any rounder, any bigger. It's just sits there. Maybe more muscular, but not... Yes. But it's like a hard muscle. It's not a roundness. It's not anything to make it look better. It's just sort of like, well, now my butt has muscles. My cheeks have muscles. and But it doesn't really mean anything. It just feels tighter, but it's not changing the way it looks. So I have a feeling that people who say that, that people, look, I'm not a fucking expert. I'm not a physiologist or whatever, but like, I feel like a lot of people, especially like Instagram that claim that you can do exercises that make your butt look Mm. incredible are maybe uh, stretching the truth a little bit. That's all I'll say. I would have to agree. I'd have to agree. I don't think it's, it's a naturally worked outable. Otherwise, would we not have seen, we've all been hopefully to a museum at some point in our lives. And we've seen the caveman exhibits and we've seen the prehistoric exhibits. Would Kate of all people, would cavemen not have had dump truck asses? All they did was work. They worked for food. They worked for shelter. I have never gone to the Museum of Natural History and seen a, a dump truck ass. Just saying. Especially when we don't even know what it is. Yes. Really. And certainly they would have had a definition for it back then. Oh, for for sure. <laughs> for sure. They would have called it... <laughs> Prehistoric. What would the prehistoric dump truck butt have been called? <laughs> this is an early astrological roundificus. <laughs> Stunning specimen. It was encased in amber <laughs> and we found it underneath the ground. A perfect 40 inch ass. <laughs> we have no idea what direction. <laughs> we just know it's 40 inches. We have unearthed a 40 inch ass. <laughs> That's that's what I'm thinking about this week. I know the holidays are upon us. The end of the year is upon us. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking about my butt. Well, I'm sorry I wasn't able to give you any clarification. But personally, I think our butts get better as we age. Yes. <laughs> they do get pools. Those Patrick Wilson ass pools. I think that will eventually become something that people will come to appreciate if they haven't already. So I hope so. And if nothing else, I am walking away from this conversation with my own definition of dump truck booty being about my intestinal capacity. That's the best route to me. I feel like if we're not talking about liters of pure human shit measured, then why why are we even messing around? My 40-inch butt takes on a totally different meaning if we're thinking about intestinal capacity. (laughs) Oh, God. Let's please give these people a theme. Oh, my God. So I can stop talking about my booty. How do we even segue? How is it even possible? There is no segue, only theme. (laughs) No segue, just theme. 
All right. Well, what is our theme this week? Our theme this week is all in one night. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That is movies that happen all in one night or all in one day. The whole movie takes place in a 24-hour span. Yes. I like the time restriction of this theme because I think with certain movies, it's like, it's fun to know the entire movie is happening in a very short period of time. And also, movies that happen all in one night, it's kind of exciting because it's so sort of like, what are the possibilities? Night versus day, 24 hours versus a week versus a month, you know, just yes. it's interesting. I appreciate this time frame for a film as well because it gives you that that feeling of what could happen. Like it kind of puts a clock on things. Yes. And it also, in both of our films, we're looking at two completely different cities and two totally opposite coasts of yes. the United States. And so... It is interesting to see what could one get up to in a 24-hour span in each particular place. There was a a moment where I was thinking about choosing uh, the film Night on Earth, which is about the cab drivers in different cities. Yeah. Beautiful film that should be watched. Jim Jarmusch. Yep, Jim Jarmusch. And I definitely thought that could be a contender. But then I decided instead to throw a three-hour movie in there just to shake things up at the end of the year. Well, I have to say, I have not seen your movie since it came out in the movie theater. (gasps) And I have so many thoughts. Excellent. And yeah, and it's going to get deep, folks. That's all I got to say. It's going to get deep. And you know, like if you've listened to our bonus episodes, you know that I've mentioned that I watched Magnolia several times during lockdown. Wow. Wow. Several times. It was like a comfort film for me in many ways. And I think that it was because of the sprawling nature of the film and the cast that it felt like I was hanging out with people. Wow. (laughs) When I wasn't. Oh, my God. That's so pathetic. But it did. It felt kind of like, again, even if I knew these stories and I knew what was coming, it took me out of my head for three entire hours, which I needed. Yeah. I'm going to be very curious to talk to you about this because I've... I don't know what to say. Let's just get into the movies, I guess. Um, All right, so my film for the theme, All in One Night, is a movie from 1985. It was written by Joseph Minion, directed by Martin Scorsese, and it's called After Hours. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm just a word processor, damn it. So um, before I get into this wild ride, I just want to talk a little bit about how this movie came to be made. We talked a little bit about Martin Scorsese before in episode nine when I talked about Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And we didn't go into much detail about it because we figured you could get that info on hundreds, if not thousands, of other film podcasts. In fact, I just have to say, I watched a couple of um, Scorsese videos talking about After Hours when I was preparing for this episode. And even Scorsese himself is like, I could give you my background, but I don't really remember. Just go read the books that were written about this movie. (laughs) And I was like, okay. That is such a baller move. Like, I don't need to remember my own life because somebody will write about it. (laughs) But the weird part is he actually does remember details very well. Like, he remembers a lot of specific dates, which I thought was really impressive. But I just think it's funny that even this director is like, just listen to somebody else talk about me. I don't want to talk about myself. (laughs) Uh, So I think that means we're in the clear is what I'm saying. But 
personally, I think that After Hours is one of the gems in his filmography. Mm -hmm. And Scorsese made it in almost a reaction to the frustrations that he experienced when he was making his film, The Last Temptation of Christ. Now, this was a passion project that he'd wanted to do for a long time. He finally got the chance to do the movie in the early 80s, and he wanted to do it right after King of Comedy in 82. But stuff was happening. He staffed the whole movie. They were about to start shooting in Morocco. And the studio decided to pull the plug. And it later was made. It was made actually in 1988. So like basically six years after he initially kind of planned to do it. Man. But what happened was he made After Hours as sort of a reaction to, like I said, the frustrations and just sort of the heartache of of wanting to do this movie and then not getting to do it, at least then. Right. And so I think that that really kind of informs the way that After Hours looks, certainly. Like, I think that After Hours is sort of this, like, stylistic filmmaking excess almost, especially for Scorsese. I mean, he's always had, like, good-looking films, and he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve that he uses in a lot of his movies. But I think that this movie in particular is very stylish, very of the time, and I think that was sort of intended to be that way. Yeah. And it was written by basically, like, a first-time screenwriter, this 26-year-old, right out of Columbia, Joseph Minion. Um, He had never done anything before. And his screenplay essentially was like a school project that was purchased by the production company that's owned by Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson. And they've done many films together, but they, they actually bought his screenplay and then Scorsese directed it. So one sentence synopsis of After Hours goes a little something like this. Paul Hackett, a computer lackey from uptown New York City, is bored one night, decides to go out. And proceeds to have the weirdest evening of his entire life. (laughs) Fantastic. That's it. It's just short and sweet. Fantastic. Paul Hackett is played by Griffin Dunn, one of my favorite actors of all time. Not sure how you feel about Griffin Dunn. You know I love him. Of course. How could you not? You know he he gets better with age like a fine wine. I agree. I will fight anybody that hates Griffin Dunn. I will fight them. I don't even want to know that person exists. Yeah. How dare you? You have to be a true monster. A true monster. And at the beginning of After Hours, Paul Hackett is at work. He's training a new guy in his office. Balky Bartokamos. Yes, I was going to say, the guy's played by Bronson Pinchot, who I actually <laughs> love seeing him in 80s movies when he pops up. I know. Beverly Hills Cop, yes. et cetera. But Paul is totally having his Joe versus the volcano moment. It's basically what's happening. Mm. He hates his job so much. He hates the office culture. And the guy that he's training, Bronson Pinchot, is already telling him he's quitting. And he's not doing this forever. <laughs> he's like, I can't, I can't do this forever. I've got plans. Is there nothing better than when you are on a job with somebody who's like, P.S., this sucks ass, and I would refuse to do it as long as you have. 
I will say, I had a job once where somebody actually did this to me. Like, I had been at the job for several years, and I was training somebody, and they were extremely young. And they were like, yeah, I don't think I'll be here that long. I think I'll just be here for like a year and maybe dip. And I was like, great. I've been here for a long time. Feels good that you said that to me. I'm so glad I'm putting my energy into this (laughs) right now. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm training you. So glad I'm training you, and it's going to mean nothing. You're just going to (laughs) leave. I mean, Paul is essentially, like I said, he's having his moment. He's thinking, is that all there is, right? So Paul goes home that night, watches some TV. He can't sleep and then decides that he's just going to go out to a coffee shop. And this is his first mistake, leaving the house. (laughs) (laughs) He left the house. How many of our own nights begin. Exactly. So he's out at the shop and he meets a woman named Marcy, who's played by Rosanna Arquette. Very cute in this role. Adorable. So cute. And she's noticing him across the restaurant. He's reading a Henry Miller book, Tropic of Cancer. And they start chatting and, you know, he's kind of thinking, hey, she's kind of cute. And then eventually she's like, I'm leaving. But hey, come to Soho where I'm staying with my friend. She's a sculptor and maybe you can buy one of her pieces from her. It was like something like a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese. That was the sell. A plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese, which one is the weirdest pickup line I've ever heard (laughs) and would not work for me. If I said to someone, hey, you should come to my friend's studio. She's selling a plaster of Paris piece of chicken, (laughs) like baked chicken or grilled salmon salad. I would not see that person ever again. And that's, that's, I think, a testament to the horniness of Paul. Yes. Is that he was like, I'm going to go 45 minutes downtown for this plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese that this random stranger is going to try to sell me. Which is a euphemism for sex, for bootay. Yes. And listen, to this point, a big part of this movie is that it takes place in New York City, specifically Soho in the 1980s, which was a very artsy part of town. Yes. And Paul Hackett is not from downtown. He's from uptown. And in my mind, this movie, this concept, this setup, right? In my mind, there were actually quite a few movies in the 80s that were about this concept, right? The uptown versus downtown movie. Mm -hmm. Or, more specifically, the straight guy who was wooed by the downtown artsy girl, okay? Yes. And I'm thinking of movies like Something Wild by Jonathan Demme, Miracle Mile, Into the Night. Mm -hmm. Movies about these sort of straight-laced, kind of yuppie guys who fall into these hijinks with these like free-spirited, sort of artsy women. The prototype for the manic pixie dream girl, almost, right? Absolutely. Very astute, yes. Yes. But what happens to Paul Hackett in After Hours is that So he's tempted, right, with what might happen with this woman, Marcy, that he just met. There's this promise of romantic adventure, and and, and she's this kind of slightly kooky downtown girl, like I said. But what happens to Paul Hackett is just an onslaught of very odd events that roll out (laughs) all in the course of this one night. And it's very slapstick meets Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of this like absurd and funny, but it's also like this Kafka-esque nightmare, right? Absolutely. And Paul, once he leaves his neck of the woods and goes downtown, goes to Soho, he's thrust into this world of these like downtown characters. 
including Marcy, but also her roommate, Kiki, who is played by Linda Fiorentino. And she is the sculptor of this bagel and cream cheese thing. She's very much that, like, picture of, like, the kind of artsy, sort of punk woman. She kind of dabbles in S&M. She's not afraid to be topless. It's just kind of that archetype, right? And he's at their loft, and he's just out of his element. And he just notices all these, like, weird details about everyone that seem slightly ominous, but he's not sure why. And at one point, he's sort of, he's been there for a while. He's just finding out kind of more and more kind of weird information about the two of them. And it just, he's just tired, wants to go back uptown. Mm -hmm. And he tries to go to the subway, finds out the fares were increased, so he doesn't have enough money to go home. So he ends up going to a bar and he starts talking with the waitress at the bar. She's played by Terry Garr and the bartender who is played by John Hurd. And this is this is an incredible evening up to this point because this cab ride, my God. <laughs> it is an iconic cab ride in film for him to even get downtown. Yeah, I heard Scorsese talk about the cab ride scene, which happens like as he's going downtown to Kiki's loft. Yeah. And about how Scorsese used to love, like, you know, the idea of, like, being in a cab, you know, going across Manhattan at night. Mm-hmm. And he just thought that was, like, the best, like, one of the best experiences of being a New Yorker. It is fucking magical. Yeah. And it is, like, some. there's something about the scenes that you've described so far that are so New York to me in the best possible way. And to, what I mean by that is it makes me feel like I'm in New York or it makes me remember the best parts of being in New York. Right. And so him going down to the subway and being like, the fare changed at midnight and now I can't get home is a very <laughs> real feeling. Yeah. Even including a Metro card, like, upgrade. Like, it is still a very real feeling. Or, like, your train has changed and now this line doesn't exist after midnight or something like that. Yeah. But the cab ride in particular, it's very... A cab ride in New York is a rarity for most people. It's expensive. Um, It's convenient, but it is not financially a solvent thing to do. And so the ability to take or the drunkenness to take a cab is you get to see so much of the city in such a different way that you usually don't get to see. So I just, I appreciate riding up the FDR or just like, I have very good memories of driving home in a cab at night, a little sauced (laughs) and just really loving New York. Yeah, and as he's on this hell ride, his money flies out the window, which is why he doesn't have enough money to get on the subway, which is why he's in the bar with Terry Garr and John Hurd, right? Yes. So he's he's in the bar, and, you know, John Hurd, the bartender, offers to give him some cash so he can get home. And here's the thing about this, is that Paul is constantly getting offers from these strangers that he's meeting as he's going through this evening. And for some reason... They just keep going awry. Like every experience that he has with every stranger (laughs) just gets more and more complicated and intertwined, which leads me to wonder, why do you keep going into strangers' apartments? Because he does that many times in the course of this evening. And I'm just like, there's your second problem. A, you left the house. (laughs) B, you're going into other people's houses where you don't know them. So... (laughs) I mean, I don't want to, you know, say, hey, you could have prevented this, but I'm just saying there's some choices made. You know what I mean? I mean, it is astonishing how many strangers are so weirdly trustworthy in this film. Right. And I think that that's the thing about Paul is that he sort of has, like, good intentions, but he just, he's in a place that he's not familiar 
And it's obviously a big part of the comedy of this film is that he's just like, doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And he's always depending on people that he doesn't know and getting caught more and more in this web of craziness. Yes. Because it's such a not New York thing to do to count on anyone. Yeah. (laughs) That is fundamentally not a New York thing to do. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely the crux of the comedy of the film. And, you know, at parts of this film, it is actually very Hitchcockian in that way. Because at one point, you know, he's kind of gone through the whole thing with the Terry Garr character and the John Hurd character. And then he gets caught in this case of mistaken identity where this entire building and then this entire community believes that he is responsible for this string of burglaries. (laughs) And the mob is headed by this maniacal ice cream truck driver who's played by Catherine O'Hara. Fantastic. And, I mean, she's wonderful. Listen, there are a lot of great women in this film. I'll t- you know, it's just with everybody that I've previously mentioned, like Catherine O'Hara, Linda Fiorentino, like Terry Garr, Rosetta Arquette. I mean, it's incredible. But the thing about Paul is that you're kind of feeling sorry for him, but you also just can't help laughing at just him being a schmuck. It's both slapstick and comedic, but also kind of scary. And Scorsese is always keeping you on her toes with that. Mm-hmm. He is using a lot of his filmmaking techniques that he's using in his other films, like the fast close-ups, and he'll focus in on certain objects. It's like, who knows if they'll be relevant later on, but you just have to notice, right? And so there's this feeling of uneasiness, but also comedy at the same time. And the joy of this movie for me, honestly, is just watching somebody like Griffin Dunn, who is an inherently likable actor, right? I mean, he's a he's a likable guy, meaning you want him to win mm-hmm. for the most part in this film. But he's an uptown guy, and he's out of his element in downtown New York City, where he's surrounded by all these, like, quote-unquote weirdos. He's around artists and gay people and punk rock guys with mohawks. And, you know, my favorite scene of the movie is actually where Paul goes to Club Berlin, and it's, the bouncer tells him it's mohawk night. And when he's in the club, the club goers actually pull him aside and try to shave his head, and Bad Brains Pay to Come <laughs> is blasting on the speakers. And and Griffin Dunn is just screaming. He's screaming and trying to get away from these, like, <laughs> punk rock guys. And it's so fucking funny to me. And they've taken, like, a clump out of his head. <laughs> yeah. And this is a guy who's dressed in, like, a white... He owns and is wearing a white linen suit. Yeah. Like, he's that guy. Exactly. And he's just the type of guy to think that people who live in Soho are weird, quote unquote. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And listen, if you were a child in the 80s, I mean, you definitely saw a lot of movies about this place called Downtown and how scary it was. And the funny thing is that it always had the opposite effect on me. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you would watch a movie like this. You would watch a movie like Adventures in Babysitting or something like where you're like, oh my God, downtown is a scary place. But I wanted to go downtown. That explains so much about you, girl. And same. Oh my God. Listen, when you grew up in Georgia, I mean, I thought that that's where my people were. Like downtown. I was like... That's where it's happening. That's where it's happening. To me, hell was the rich white suburbs. That's where hell is. To me, I was like downtown. I can't wait to be with all the, the diversity and like the culture and the arts and everything. I just wanted to be a part of it. Well, especially as a kid, because I feel like as a kid, I was interested enough to want that kind of excitement, but naive enough to not think anything bad could happen to me. 
Yeah. So downtown was very appealing in that way because I'm like, oh, yeah, I might go to a, this club and, you know, people where people get their, their head shaved, but not me. And even if it does happen, oh, well, that's part of the adventure. Like, it was just very easy to kind of encapsulate downtown and downtown happenings as, like, everything is part of the ride. Right. So it just made me, like, very excited to be in a place where anything could happen because the suburbs are the exact fucking opposite. Yeah. I think Atlanta, downtown Atlanta, in the 90s, especially in the early 90s, when I was going through high school and sort of getting a car for the first time, early to mid-90s, was definitely not what it is today. And I think that's the same for New York City, too. Downtown Atlanta was definitely terrifying, Mm -hmm. but... Like you said, I just felt game for it all. And I, you know, and I think that was a naive instinct maybe in a lot of ways where I thought, I don't know. I just thought, even if I get my car broken into, it's part of the experience. And I'm just sort of like, wow, that's a weird, that's a young person's way of thinking about things, isn't it? I love it. I love this movie so, so much. It is such a ride. Like, the whole time you're watching it, you just feel like you're on a roller coaster of an adventure. Like, I feel it in my chest when I watch this movie. Yeah. Um, like, all the harrowing parts and all the funny parts. And and if you are a longtime internet user, you've definitely seen the meme of Griffin Dunn looking in the mirror and then looking to his left and seeing the guy with a shark eating his dick. Yes. I'll say this. I'm not going to give away the ending of this film because I, I just won't because this movie is too good for me to do that. But the ending of this movie is perfect. Yes. It's just perfect. It's the perfect summation of life. And the second perfect summation of life is the drawing of the shark biting the guy's boner <laughs> that <laughs> Paul sees on the wall in the bathroom. I mean, it is like those two things, like the ending of this film and then sort of like that scene of just the way that he looks and sees that shark. It's like a, a Sharpie drawing or whatever. I'm just like... Beautiful. Exactly. It's the meaning of life right there. <laughs> I'm so glad you picked this movie. Thank you so much for picking it. Well, thank you. Listen, I also enjoy seeing normal people's teeth and normal people's eyebrows in this film. I would be remiss if I didn't say that. So, Oh, I mean, not unibrow was not a problem back then. Yes. No one was fucking. Nobody was waxing. Nobody gave a shit. Yeah. And like, like Griffin's son and Roseanne Arquette's teeth in the diner. I'm just like, this is what normal people's teeth look like. What happened to that? I guess Hollywood was like, no more cigarette stained teeth. No. <laughs> Everybody has to get veneers. Sorry. Hollywood Hollywood said, no sharps. We can't have any sharp teeth. Yes. At all. <laughs> they all have to be smooth and square. <laughs> yes. So this is a great film. One of my all-time favorite all-in-one-night movies. And that's it. Great pick. Thank you. Great pick. And um, I think it pairs nicely with mine in a very opposite dark way. <laughs> like mine seems like the dark side of the coin to After Hours. Mm-hmm. Because my movie, so the, my film that I picked for the theme of All in One Night was released in 1999, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And my movie is Magnolia. Sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. Oh boy, Magnolia. Now look, as you know, if you are a longtime listener of the cast, this is not going to be a deep dive into Paul Thomas Anderson's career and works. What I will say is that he is 
considered by many to be an auteur and a genius, and he has many accolades. He is well-loved by the film community. You can look up several of his films, like, you know, There Will Be Blood and and Punch Drunk Love. And I mean, Boogie Nights, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, he has made several good films. You probably have a favorite that I have not mentioned here or will not mention here, and that's okay. But he... He's one of my favorite filmmakers as well. Like, I just really, I appreciate that every time one of his movies comes out, it's going to be beautiful and or brilliant in a way that I was not expecting. Like, none of his movies are exactly the same. You know, The Master does not look anything like Magnolia. And it doesn't feel the same way. And it's, you know, he has he has a real sensibility about him for sure. But it's not the same thing regurgitated over and over again. Mm -hmm. He surprises me every time. And... For some reason, <laughs> I got really into Magnolia during lockdown. It might be my favorite of his films. I think that Phantom Thread is high up there as well. Mm. But there's something about this movie, and it's kind of a dirty, gritty movie for him, that I just really appreciate more and more as time goes on. It was released in 1999. I feel like, you know, 20 plus years later, uh, it really changes for me every time I see it. And because this is an ensemble cast and it's a film that has a bevy of actors in it that are working so beautifully together, but also enacting these deeply separate storylines, I just kind of find something else to attach myself to, like every time. And I love it. So it was nominated for two Golden Globes and Tom Cruise won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture. We will get to him later, but we're going to start with my one-sentence synopsis, which I don't know if it's good or bad this week. I don't know. But my one-sentence synopsis of Magnolia is the San Fernando Valley will never stop trying to fuck you the fuck up. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's so wow. big. I don't know what else, how else to encapsulate it. I could go on about like the lives of the intersecting blah, blah, blah. The San Fernando Valley will never stop trying to find ways to fuck you the fuck up. You know, it's interesting too, because obviously when I saw this film and I saw a lot of his early films, I hadn't lived in LA yet. So I didn't really understand the, the sort of um, tie that he has with the Valley. Mm-hmm. And now that I have had the experience of living in L.A., I'm like, it makes more sense now. I, I don't think that that translates as well unless you kind of have spent a lot of time there or live there. But then, yeah, once I figured that out, because I haven't seen this movie, like I said, since it came out. And uh, yeah, and now that I have that experience of living in L.A., I'm like, Wow, that's like almost like a different movie because of the location, just from being yeah. aware of what he's talking about now, right? No, I completely agree. Like, now that I have lived there, I have a sense of the sprawl yeah. and the scope of the movie in a way that I hadn't before, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, the Valley is always an interesting way to talk about Southern California, the lives of, you know, kind of more more day-to-day -day people and not just focusing on the glitz and the glam and the hills and all that kind of shit. And I just appreciate that he doesn't mind getting in there and talking about that. Yeah. And it's weird. It's kind of like whenever I pick a movie like this, I feel weirdly underqualified to talk about it because I'm like not going to give his whole background and do the deep dive thing. But I do. It's not because I don't appreciate him as a creator. It's just that I that's not what this is about for us. Like I want to just talk about this movie and kind of have people get into it in this way. 
Yeah. The way that I want to start talking about this movie, because it is so big, it is so sprawling, is to talk about the characters and what each character is going through in the film and then maybe talk about some of my favorite moments. So this is, for me, more than anything, if I were going to do a a one-sentence synopsis that was a little bit longer, if I was going to try to sum it up in a different way, I would say that this movie for me is primarily about pain and regret. Mm and the coincidence of life and how we move through pain and regret as we bump up against each other and all of our coincidences, you know, kind of being part of that that ride. So we're going to start with talking about Linda, who's a character played by Julianne Moore, who is so good in this movie. Linda plays the wife of a dying man, and she is constantly judged and questioned uh, for her need to procure pills. And she is stuck in this chasm of grief because she just can't handle watching this man die. And her regret is that she doesn't think she treated him well. She doesn't think she was a good wife to him. And she started to love him after he got sick and is feeling the the heaviness of how much time was lost, I think, in their relationship. And her husband, the man who's dying, is named Earl, Earl Partridge, played by Jason Robards. What's wild in watching this film and maybe makes it more poignant for me is that Jason Robards was dying Mm. when this film was being made. And he is an incredible actor who has had an astonishing career. And he took this role to another level with the sounds and the realness of it. It's really, it's hard for me to watch because he's... He's dying of cancer and, again, filled with pain, filled with regret. He drops this bombshell to his nurse that he has a son that he hasn't seen in years and he wants to see before he dies, his son Jack. But what's so hard for me to watch with Earl is that since the last time I watched this film, before I started watching it repeatedly during lockdown, is I watched my aunt die of cancer in that time. So the sounds that he was making, the groans, it was very, very real. The the kind of way that you're kind of out of it a little bit, like you kind of know what's happening, but you're not quite present. It is a very visceral thing to see replicated on screen. And again, that Jason Robards was dying at the time of filming this made it even more spectacular to me that he was able to do that. So Earl is dying. Linda's his wife. She spends most of the movie running around. He calls her a wacko, but he loves her. And his nurse is Phil, who is played by late, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. And this to me is one of the more, the possibly the most beautiful role I think he's ever played. And Phil is this nurse who ends up helping Earl look for his son, Jack. But he is so full of tenderness and he's so funny and he's so, he's just so teary-eyed and gorgeous in this movie. There's no other way for me to describe it. It's a truly gorgeous moment from him in his, again, astounding acting career. Um, He is a frequent collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, who always got really fascinating stuff from him. Uh, But this, to me, is one of his most beautiful roles. And he has some of the funniest lines in the movie. And he really does have some of the funniest scenes in the movie, which are all played with, like, just such a a boyishness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just really, I dig him. 
Earl's son, who Phil is helping him look for, is Frank. Uh, Frank T.J. Mackey, whose real name is Jack. And he is everywhere. He is everywhere. This film kind of, for me, has two beginnings. There's the beginning that Ricky Jay talks about coincidence, and he, he gives the three vignettes of coincidence through time. But then there's also the beginning, like after the film properly starts, where you get to run through the city looking at all the characters as they're being introduced. And Frank T.J. Mackey is in the background of almost all of them (laughs) because he is this inspirational, speaking, dating guru, misogynist shithead um, (laughs) who has like this seduce and destroy concept that he is marketing in the form of um, seminars on how to get women to obey you and respect the cock and tame the cunt and all that shit. But he, this again, like to me and to many people is one of Tom Cruise's best roles. One of my favorite professional haters, Janet Maslin, truly had almost nothing good to say about this movie in the beginning of her review. She's like, they stop and burst into song at one point. Like, this is horrible. But she absolutely loved Tom Cruise in this film as well. The way that she described it, and I will quote her here, this is Janet Maslin for the New York Times in her film review that's entitled Entangled Lives on the Cusp of the Millennium. And she said that, quote, its single biggest surprise is Tom Cruise in the role of strutting, obscenity-spouting cult figure named Frank Mackey. Frank's brand of celebrity as a macho self-help guru is seen as symptomatic of the film's time and place. But she goes on to say that Mr. Anderson creates a sustained trial by fire for Frank and shows how each of the film's initially secure-seeming characters is actually so vulnerable and needy. And that is potentially one of my favorite things about this Frank Mackey character is we get to watch him come in at his height. He is at full power. He's at full strength. He is dominating the stage during one of his presentations. And then he has an interview with an actress named um, April Grace who slowly and methodically rips him to fucking shreds simply by asking him to tell the truth. It is one of the best sequences in film I have seen in my lifetime. Yeah. Truly. So this Frank T.J. Mackey character, like, I think I remember at the time when I first saw the film, just thinking that he was ridiculous. Like, obviously completely overblown and a buffoon. And, you know, he just kind of reminds you of, like, the guys that that book, The Game, was written about, Mm -hmm. that Neil Strauss book, which I don't know if anybody's read it, but I read it and it was, like, the same feeling of, like, these guys are ridiculous and this is actually horrifying. But now, like, having watched it again, obviously when we were recording this podcast in 2021, I was like, wow, this is insane. Like, the level of misogyny that Frank T.J. Mackey has like this character has is kind of like, it's almost like too much to take sometimes. And that part that you're just talking about, the interview part. And I mean, trust me, I am fucking thrilled that she shuts him down. Mm -hmm. Because at one point he is literally in his underwear in front of her. Yes. And you're just like, what the fuck? And he's panting like a tiger and like pacing and... Yeah. It was psychotic. Like, I don't remember thinking that back then. Mm -hmm. But I think now, now that I'm older, I was like, this guy is absolutely fucking psychotic. Yeah. I could see how you would think that. (laughs) Because he was. (laughs) Yeah. He is. He's completely 
And what I like about it, because he is in the psychosis of his own creation, but what I like about this character and what I think makes this one of Tom Cruise's best performances for me is that we get to see him cracked wide open and understand why he is the way he is. So when you get his full story, it becomes clearer how much of an act this is, but that also just exacerbates how insane it is that he acts like this. Yeah. And it is unforgivable. Like, it is almost unforgivable. But then by the end of the movie you kind of realize that he doesn't forgive himself. So how could he act in any other way? Right. It's really complicated and interesting. And again, not to say that, you know, Frank T.J. Mackey is a character who left that film at the end of the film, uh, you know, became a different or better person. Right. I just think that he, something cracked open in him that what I like about what Paul Thomas Anderson did with it is it left us wondering, like, is he going to take advantage of that or not? Like, now that that has been revealed... And his core has been revealed. What will he do with it? Yeah. And I thought that was a really, like, a much better place to leave that character than to see a full turn or a full regression and slide back into misogyny. Like, I like wondering and not knowing what this character would have done. Yeah. It kind of takes a shift from there. Like, there's some overlap with those four characters And then we get a little more overlap with the next few characters. We have Claudia, who plays this very high-key woman who snorts coke a lot. Um, She's very promiscuous, and uh, she hates her father. Her father is, uh, and Claudia, by the way, is played by Melora Walters. Uh, She just hates Jimmy Gator, and Jimmy Gator is played by Philip Baker Hall, and he, again, another frequent collaborator of Paul Thomas Anderson's. Uh, And he plays this game show host. He hosts a game show for for kids called What Do Kids Know? And he finds out at the beginning of the film that he's dying of cancer. He tries to go to Claudia's apartment to tell her. And she freaks out in a way that at the time seems overwrought, like over the top (laughs) freaks out about him being in her apartment and tells him to get out Mm -hmm. and is saying very strange things, like, you think I'm a whore and stuff like that. She's just a very, again, high-strung, high-key character. And he hosts this game show. He's very well-known. He's very famous. They do not have a good relationship at all. And then you have Donnie, who's played by William H. Macy. And quiz kid Donnie Smith Mm. was a big winner in the 60s on this game show that's been running forever. One of the running themes of this movie is that the game show is now uh, approaching its 12,000th episode. So it's a big celebration. Mm -hmm. And Donnie is like this very lovesick, forlorn sort of failure, which is strange because the premise of the, the game show is that the kids are all really smart like smarter than most adults. And he works at this appliance store that he gets fired from at the beginning of the movie. And I just kept wondering, because this is a character who's drowning in debt and doesn't have a lot of ambition and doesn't have a lot of opportunity. And you just wonder, like, how does someone so book smart end up like this? And some of that is answered in the film. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learn that his parents took his money, his winnings, which is part of it. And that he also just never really learned where to place his feelings. And like he never, he just seems like the kind of kid uh, or adult who didn't have a lot of help as a kid becoming a person. 
So he was smart and they kind of left it at that, but he never learned how to progress beyond that into becoming a full person. And the thing that he says over and over again, because he's getting braces because he's in love with a bartender who has braces Hmm. and these very revealing and wonderful scenes with Henry Gibson, who plays a a character named Thurston. And yeah, he just kind of, um, he's just kind of lovesick. He's just kind of a lost, a lost puppy of a person. And he gets, tries to get these braces and he keeps saying, you know, I have a lot of love to give. And, you know, I'll treat you well, that kind of thing. It's just, it's very sad. It's very sad. But he kind of, we also get the modern day version of Donnie in the Stanley character. So there's this character named Stanley, played by Jeremy Blackman. And he is like a big winner on this game show. But we also get to see that he is completely mistreated by his father. Mm. Uh, He is ignored. He is isolated. He at one point tells his other teammates that he doesn't have to go to classes anymore. They just let him sit in the library all day. He carries four bags of books to school. And he's this very gentle kid who's trying to relate to to the world. But they treat him like a freak, like a sideshow freak. Mm. And... It's absolutely heartbreaking. Like he is the one of the more heartbreaking characters for me because he sees the world so clearly, but he's too young to do anything about it. Um, and then we also have uh, one of our final people who rounds out this this lovely display uh, is Jim, played by John C. Riley, and he's just kind of this incompetent cop who is also not lucky in love and not lucky in life but is really committed to his job and he's really committed to Claudia when they meet. Uh, He meets Claudia after he goes to her house for a noise complaint because she's playing her music really loud and and doing drugs. So that's kind of the setup of the film. And there are so many different moments of this movie that make me want to just kind of curl up and cry. But I also really love the pace of the movie. So there's the one thing that I think P.T. Anderson did that was unique and wonderful is he used Amy Mann for the soundtrack. And Amy Mann's voice is kind of the through line of all these stories. And there's even a point where he uses some of the lyrics for one of her songs as a conversation between the characters. And Again, these characters do at one point break out into song, which I think a lot of people probably didn't like or thought was weird at the time, uh, but has since been replicated by shows like Euphoria and like a ton of other things. I really appreciate how this soundtrack was a unique and interesting way to tie the stories together because these are all such disparate people and we get to see how... They come together at the end, but their stories are just so interesting in the telling. There's a lot going on, a lot of characters, a lot of um, really hard scenes to watch. Mm -hmm. There was a point where I had to shut the movie off and kind of like walk out of the room. What part? Do you mind me asking? Um, the part with Jason Robards talking about his, uh, high school, was it his high school girlfriend? Yes. Lily, Frank's mother. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a hard time watching that all the way through. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very sad. You know, I, I think for me, there were moments where I felt a little like triggered by the, this illness mm-hmm. scenes because of you know, just having experiences with being sick and and seeing other people sick, it was just hard. It was hard to watch. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's, I don't want to like say that this movie is bad because it made me feel bad. Right. 
Because I actually think the opposite a lot of times, that movies are good because they make you feel bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they, they they provoke a lot of, like, very gut emotions, right? But I'm, like, torn about this film, I gotta be honest, because I haven't seen it in a long time. And when I first saw it, I actually didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But I was actually really looking forward to watching it again. And I had a different experience. I mean, there were moments where I thought this movie was too real. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. too real. It's very visceral, Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, not to say that that's a bad thing. For me, I was like, I got to take a break. I got I got to take a break with some of this. And, um, you know, I understand that, you know, he basically does this like kind of like Robert Altman-esque type of thing where he takes all these characters and he shows you what they're all about. And then he kind of shows you how they all are connected. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, they've got commonalities, right? It's resentment, guilt, Grief, abuse, disappointment. That's the universality between all these characters. It's just like all these emotions. Mm -hmm. There were times where I felt like, ooh, we are really, really going there. Like we're really getting into these dark places with these characters. And I just really hope that I can stick with this and see how it all comes together. And I hope that this movie isn't too sad at the end where (laughs) I'm not going to like it. I was really scared. Like, I was just basically right. like, I don't know what's going to happen. I felt kind of like on this terror ride, you know? <laughs> and where did you land? It feels a little bit more of a mixed bag mm-hmm. than I did when I saw it the first time. That's fair. But I think that that's good. Yeah. I think it's a good thing to to be challenged by films. And, I, you know, I don't want to place too much importance on this film. I don't want to give the impression that I'm like, this is like the deepest text I've ever seen and I can't, you know, get out of it and I have to like, you know, really unravel it as if it was like the Bible or something. But also, there's a lot of biblical references in the movie too. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, it's a lot. But I also think that there are moments of bliss, of like, you know, where there was that moment of, yes, like that character is standing up for themselves or is sort of having a reckoning. And, you know, during the interview, the Frank interview was one of them, when the son went up to his father and told them that he needs to be treated better. Yes. You know, the moments of seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman upset and crying. I mean, I just was sort of like really shook by that. Mm -hmm. And, but also like, it felt like a release almost in a way too, because of just his role and and who he was to the Jason Robards character. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, like it was, it's a really hard movie to talk about because there's so many details. There's so much, so many storylines and it is just so emotional. I mean, it's an epic film. It's really epic in that way. It truly is. It truly. And thank you for saying that. Cause I think that that is I've wanted to talk about this film on the podcast since we started the podcast, but I, I didn't know what how it would fit best. Yeah. And this felt like a gentle way into a really incredible film that is so big. And you're right. It's hard. And it, it's I'm interested to see what I'll feel like in 20 years when I watch it. You know, I I just it's remarkable to me for that reason that it is a film you can come back to again and again, but also that. You're right. It's really challenging. I think that I empathized this year when I watched it a lot. I empathized so much with Frank Mackey when he finally gets to his father and is just like so angry 
and like grasping his hands, kind of holding back tears through gritted teeth, angry. Oh, man. But also saying, you know, don't die, you asshole. He needed his father to come back to him when he was 14. He's he's just kind of regressed to this 14-year-old who just watched his own mother die of cancer. And now he's doing the same thing with his estranged father, and those emotions came right back to the surface. And that was fucking hard to watch. Yeah, And so I think hard. that Tom Cruise did a really good job I mean, to say the least, of playing that part. It's memorable to me for that more than it is for the the clownish Frank Mackey on stage. I think what makes Tom Cruise so good in this film is that his character, this Frank T.J. Mackey character, is the personality and the bravado is is a performance. Like, mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting is, is seeing the actor, Tom Cruise, have to play this type of person, which is ostensibly a performance. Like, his character is, like, this bigger-than-life, insane person, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what I think a lot of people have maybe accused Tom Cruise of being just in his life, that he is also this bigger-than-life, performative weirdo. And there's a moment where I'm like, that's so interesting to see Tom Cruise playing this kind of guy. Yes. And with the whole presentation and and everything that we know about Tom Cruise and the, you know, the Scientology stuff. Mm -hmm. I just thought, wow, like, it just really hit me, like, how kind of bold that was for him to be asked. It's it's kind of a bold move for both PTA and Tom Cruise to even have this character to begin with, but also have him play it. Exactly. You know? Yeah, because of the moment in time, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And it wasn't a parody. It didn't feel to me like a parody of himself. Yeah. It felt like he was playing that role, for sure, like to a T. Yeah. But the similarities are too close to be ignored. (laughs) But yet, you also know he wasn't playing himself. So, yeah. Right. And that he's playing a character that has to interact with his father, who is dying, played by an actor who is dying. It's just like... exactly really intense. And that scene of the two of them at towards the end is, I mean, obviously it's talked about so much, but yeah, Oof. very hard to watch a lot of times. And another one that's hard for me to watch, and it has been since the first time I saw it, but I think it, it's compounded more as time goes on, is that scene with Julianne Moore in the pharmacy. She's handed over all these prescriptions after we've watched her kind of quickly and furiously collect them from the doctors. Yeah. So the vibe that you get from watching her is, She's just a pill head. She's going to try to get as many, you know, as many prescriptions as possible. But then she goes to this pharmacy and the young pharmacist played by Pat Healy instantly judges her as like, wow, this is a lot of prescriptions. And then he goes to fill them with the older pharmacist and they're both kind of looking at her and she's watching them watch her while she's all she's doing is standing at the counter. The young pharmacist comes back and says, you know, starts talking about each individual prescription. Like, well, this one is really harsh. You know, you you know you shouldn't mix these. And you know you shouldn't mix. This one's really intense. And she goes through this such this emotional ride and this deeply emotional scene where she's like, you don't know my life. I live with death. Like, I have death all around me. Yeah. And just that it kind of brings up some personal things there about, you know, how... Uh, like medical racism and medical mistreatment and how hard it is to be your own advocate. You know, for me in my life, it's been really hard to be my own advocate when it comes to medical stuff. But it's also just the grief of watching someone who doesn't know how to watch someone die or how to help them or how to grieve for them or how to get through this. And she's so emotional in that scene, but she's so 
fierce. Like she's fiercely protective of the fact that she doesn't want these people to judge her. She won't allow it. Yeah. Um, they're trying to do it anyway, but she won't allow it. And it's just a fucking incredible scene to watch. And she has a couple. She has quite a few in this in this movie. I think that that is the one to me that stands out as one of her most dynamic performances on on film. Yeah. I wanted to kill Pat Healy in that moment of that scene. Oh my God. Because I was basically like, is that even legal? Are you allowed right. to even make comments like this? But her reaction to it was so absolutely right justified. Yes. But it also, like, again, was a way for us to see the inside of this character. Yes. And that's intense. That's a very intense thing to watch. And there's just so much to this film, I know, that it's probably impossible to even talk about in <laughs> in the short <laughs> amount of time that we have on this podcast. But all I'll say is that it completely made me reevaluate the film. I'm so happy that you chose it for this theme because it forced me to watch it again. Sometimes you don't have this like redemptive experience with the film where you're like, oh, I used to hate this movie and now I love it. Sometimes you yes. didn't like this movie, but now you think about it in a different way for better or for worse. And I think that that's totally necessary as a person who is into art of any kind. It helps you just be a better patron of art. Yes. And like I said, I am just so, I'm so pleased that I got to watch it again and process it as hard as it was in points. I'm just, I'm glad I got to see it again. So thank you. Of course. Thank you. And yeah, it's one of my favorite all in one night movies, all in one day movies, um, because it is so sprawling and I can't believe that he is able to write a movie that gets this much into one day, but that's also part of the joy of it is is to realize that so much happens in a day for everybody. I know. And it's, you know, it seems like every day is just like, eh, whatever. But there's so much happening in a day for every person on this planet. And um, yeah, I just, I like, I like having that reminder and to see these fully realized characters in this full display, um, this full emotional display. And I know that people are probably screaming about actors I forgot to mention, like Alfred Molina uh, and Luis Guzman and Ricky Jay. And yes, they're in here as well. And it's a great movie, but it has a huge fucking cast. And this is the cast I'm talking about today. Maybe we'll come back to Magnolia and I'll talk about everyone else. Listen, I feel like if you want to dedicate an entire bonus episode to it, I'm sure people would love it. I mean, you could get the full thoughts on a bonus episode because, I mean, like I said, I was like, oop, she's taking a crack at this one. Okay. Oh my God, I'm trying. And I feel insane. I feel insane that I even tried it. But... (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm proud of you, but I also know what it's like to not be able to say all the things that you want to say about a film, and then (laughs) people are in the comments like, you forgot this, you forgot this, it's a three-hour movie, people, come on. I could genuinely dedicate an episode to every character. (laughs) Hey. I truly could. That is how big this movie is. But, you know, tried to crack it. I tried to crack it open just to get you interested if you haven't seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while. Watch it again. If you are no longer a teenager, watch it again. Yes. And if you are someone who's never seen it before, give it a try. Totally, 100%. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well. I think next week is going to be... A little bit less harrowing. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? It is the holidays after all. Exactly. I was just going to say, maybe not. Maybe not. I spoke too soon. But do you want to tell these fine folks what our films are next week? 
Oh, sure. So films for next week are Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from 2005 and Black Christmas from 1974. Yay! Waltz the theme. Okay, so... If you want to email us, if you have thoughts on Magnolia, on After Hours, if you want to tell us a crazy one night that you had, email us. I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And if you uh, want to show us photos from that one night, you can find us on our social media at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we've got holiday merch, people. Yes, that's right. We've got Danielle's book in the shop. We got those Bargello kits, which are selling like hotcakes. Yeah, get them while you can because it's it's a limited edition. Oh, yeah. And same as same with the book. Yeah. I signed a few books and that's it. Once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. So if they're not already sold out, you can get everything, including the old stuff, at the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more from us, we've got a slew of bonus episodes up on Stitcher Premium. Uh, you can also use the promo code SAW for a free month. Wow. Danielle, as always, it's a pleasure. So glad to talk movies with you every week. Always, always. And look, it is nearing the end of the year, so I hope people are finding more time to watch movies instead of less and that you are taking time to enjoy your friendships. I'm glad that I got to see you Within the last month yes. in Ohio, we got to hang. It was great. Yes. Uh, and I hope I get to see you again really soon. You will. I'm taking my dump truck booty up to your ah! house. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Samarosi. Our engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. You can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.